Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the 82nd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we have Liz Manchel back on the show. Yeah, three-peat. Woo-woo! She's uh, here repping the Sundance Creative Distribution Fellowship. We're going to learn all about uh, how they're making independent filmmaking and distribution more transparent and how you can get free money yeah we go pretty deep right off the bat into all the distribution terminology so this is really great for people that have made a feature or are about to finish a feature are wondering like what happens if i make a movie what you do with it uh liz is pretty much an expert at all that stuff and what to do and definitely what not to do definitely I would argue if you're thinking about making a feature and you want to figure out what the future holds, this is a great episode to kind of learn about the final stage of making a film, which is distribution. And we're also going to answer a couple listener questions. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Both questions are from one listener. Literally a couple. Uh, So stay tuned. Liz, welcome back. Hi. Now you're in a dead heat with Eric Kissick for most recurring episodes of just shoot it how's that feel i mean he's pretty fancy so i feel great great. he's pretty great yeah you know he edits um the good place on nbc and he like you'd think he as the editor you're like in so much in control but he'll they'll just say like oh we have to do a vfx review over lunch today oh we have to do like the sound mix like they change the schedule all the time and so Hmm. it's part of the i think craziness of working in tv TV. ramley talks about this too that you're just your life isn't yours anymore when you're on a TV on, on a big TV show. But you're making that TV money. That TV money. So, Speaking of making money, Liz. <laughs> yes. So you came here today to talk to us about a, a new initiative that you're yeah. you created. Yeah. You pioneered. Um, no. Well, I helped, I helped design it a little bit, but um, my boss Chris Horton should take all the credit because when we screw up we'd really would like to blame him he'll get fired yeah (laughs) yeah you you get to keep your job if it goes down um i work at the creative distribution initiative at sundance institute and uh we created the creative distribution fellowship which is wait say that one more time the creative distribution fellowship the cdf cdf from the cdi and um, this is our second year, although it hasn't even been a full year yet, but it's like our second year of applications. And um, it's an open, open to the public, free application that's going on right now. And we currently only have 24 applications. So I'm trying to spread the word. And, and how many do you choose? Uh, four. But I'm just saying, like, I want to choose between, like, hundreds. Sure. I don't want to choose within 24 people. Four out of 24, I like those odds, yeah. right? Yeah. That's yeah, almost yeah. as good as one out of six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is this initiative? <laughs> okay, so basically our department used to be called something else. We were called Art of Services. And our whole thing was to support Sundance alumni with digital distribution deals. We have, um, this is where I get nerdy. I'm sorry. Um, we have a partnership with an aggregator. The aggregator's name is Premier Digital. And that means we give preferred rates or discounts to Sundance alumni in order to get their film on iTunes, Google Play, Xbox, all of those transactional and EST platforms. What is EST? Um, electric or electronic sell-through. Mm, got it. Um, I always mix up electric and electric. I mean, whatever. Sure, sure. Okay, so. <laughs> but, but, but all the places where you 
pay to watch a movie pay transactionally so like the one-time fee Mm -hmm. you get the movie either rather than a subscription service exactly which would be netflix hulu amazon prime so what's the discount like if let's say i buy a movie on itunes for 4.99 and usually apple would take 20 percent, they would only take 10 percent. no it's not a discount from what the platform takes it's a discount um with what you pay the aggregator so these platforms are open platforms so that means um, all you have to do is pass a QC and your film goes directly on that platform. So your aggregator does the QC. You submit all your deliverables. Again, it's like we're starting out with all the all the terms, all the lingo. You submit your feature, your master, your master feature, your trailer, your closed caption files to your aggregator. You pay them a one-time fee. They deliver it to iTunes. You get all the money that iTunes doesn't take directly back to your LLC, there's no distribution fee. So this is an alternative to a distributor coming along and saying, let me take your film, I'm gonna give you an advance, and I'm gonna give you X percentage of everything we make, but I'm also gonna take out the marketing money that we spent, and I'm also gonna take out some overhead. I'm also- Manufacturing. Yeah, I'm not gonna report to you all the exact numbers that we earned. Mm -hmm. So- I um, won't return your calls. Right. So the alternative is self-distribution. And so we've been encouraging and working with filmmakers for almost seven years now on splitting your rights and doing creative distribution, which means anything other than an all rights deal, really. Um, Now that I've set up the entire history of our departments, we now um, are extending our support to the public and we're offering limited intimate support to three to four films a year through this fellowship. Mm-hmm. We launched last year and we picked two Sundance films. This was when we were in like our inaugural year and we had to keep it in the family. And one of those films was Columbus and the other one was Unrest. Um, I'm not, okay, so Columbus is John Cho. Mm-hmm. Um, it's directed by this guy named Koganada. He did a bunch of these, um, he did a lot of these Vimeo movies where they were tributes to directors. So he mm. did one about like Wes Anderson and how everything's, you know, centered in the frame. And he did one about Kubrick and like Deep Space, I think, and just these studies uh, in in film art and and form. So this is his first feature called Columbus. And then um, right now it just it's like nearing a million at the box office. Oh wow. It's really crazy in a year that like Sundance apparently is not doing so well theatrically. Um, we're proving that wrong. So, sorry, when you say it's nearing a million in the box office, you're talking about in theaters. Yeah. And are you guys part of that distribution? So we picked these two films and we gave them each grant money. And then we... Are you were... allowed to say how much grant money? No. I can tell you that we were going to pick four films and we pick two films instead so both of these films got a little bit more help Mm -hmm. than the films we'll get this year uh enough to support a theatrical release for each of them Mm -hmm. so and how many screens like a 10 a 100 no like so like dozens of markets i mean maybe 30 30 markets Mm -hmm. something like that and we're talking when you say support for these films are we talking print and advertising like media buys or so in order to do a theatrical run you have certain requirements made of you they Mm -hmm. did a theatrical deal with landmark Mm -hmm. and there's specific fun contractual terms you have to abide by when you work with certain chains or um, theater groupings certain theaters will require a print ad certain markets will require you know you be in the new york times in a 
one quarter inch spread or I don't even know the mm-hmm. exact specifics it's of it. It's kind of unique to each market basically. Yes, in but in, it costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then you have things like virtual print fees and you have things like the shipping costs to get the poster to the movie theater. I mean, there's just all these things filmmakers don't account for. Uh, so these filmmakers really wanted to do theatrical. They really wanted to work with Landmark. It's all going to be broken down in these case studies that we're going to be distributing uh, actually in March of this year. They got teamed up with a film booker that I believe we introduced them to. We um, And a film booker puts the film in theaters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The film booker essentially is the middle person in between the art house or the theater chain and the filmmaker. and sets out all of the deliverables and calendars out all the bookings and kind of coordinates everything. Mm -hmm. And anyone can hire a booker. This is not something that would just be for this one film. They hired a very specific booker who has worked with a lot of Sundance titles. For the exchange for all of these services, right, which are all free once you kind of get these grant this grant so you get money you get distribution help you get all of these you get intimate guidance through all of these things that from you, sundance from, from sundance mm-hmm. where you're probably you know um out of your depth right all of the confusing stuff that a first filmmaker has to go through you're there to help but the, oh, the that's thing a good is, question actually does it have to be a first movie no no it doesn't oh, yeah and what I want to clarify is like, you know, we got into the deep dive with Columbus and we haven't even really talked about unrest, but what we're giving these filmmakers is just grant money mm-hmm. and then they choose how to spend it. Mm-hmm. And we can't give them enough money for all the distribution expenses. There's not enough money in the world sure. to give each film everything they need to have a real solid marketing and distribution plan. I mean, so each of these films used some of their own budget, some of their own resources, and we just supplemented it. Mm-hmm. But but in exchange... In exchange, we ask for their souls. Um, we <laughs> require transparency. So like like we were saying, all, all these filmmakers, so the Columbus filmmakers, the Unrest filmmakers, and the filmmakers we're hoping to work with this year are going to be reporting to us budget numbers, revenue numbers, box office numbers, audience growth. We're going to see how they did all their digital marketing, what audiences they targeted, how they grew their audience. I mean, basically everything that's specific to that film's success in its release, we're going to package that into a case study and put it out into the world for everyone to learn from. When you, for free? For free. Um, we're really trying to provide educational resources in our department. What I think people may not know, when you work with an all-rights distributor, um, you sign a confidentiality clause and you can't share information. But if you were to self-distribute, you, there's nothing stopping you from sharing information with other filmmakers who could really benefit from it because this information is not out there. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. so like a normal distributor that would distribute a Sundance movie is like an A24 or who are some yeah, of the big lucky. companies? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, A24, Magnolia, IFC. I mean... Sundance filmmakers are very lucky. A lot of Sundance filmmakers get distribution and they get MGs or advances. They get the MG is a minimum guarantee, which is right. basically where they they will give you money to take your movie, which right. is not something that uh, 
a lot of people get. You know, I used a lot of language blindly when when um, the orchard picked up my film, and I would say things, yeah, like the the orchard bought us. They, you know, they they they, they got us. They bought us. So we got bought by the orchard, and it's like that was not true. We were acquired by the orchard because no one gave us an MG, no one gave us an advance. So there's just like different terminology that people use willy-nilly um sometimes to self-inflate right, right. like sometimes be like yeah <laughs> right. right which no you wouldn't fault anyone for but it's like there's a difference between like knowing really what you're saying is like knowing the difference between what an mg is and an acquisition is like there's not a good way to learn that stuff right now right it's not out there and we've actually already written quite a few articles in our department and we're trying to get those out beyond the Sundance bubble. I'm writing an article right now about everything you want to know about theatrical distribution. We wrote an article about the importance of data and how you market your film, um, how you can look at analytics on like Facebook and Google and try to figure out audience targeting. I mean, there's a lot of really cool, sexy things in distribution uh, that no one's talking about because of these confidentiality clauses and because of... um, there's something like this fear of sharing information that's mm-hmm. going on and we're trying to break out of that there's so much you know just kind of culturally we're all expected to like keep these secret secrets guard these secrets like oh if they don't know how much i spent then maybe uh they'll pay more for my movie or just you're, they're apprehensive right it's a personal thing where it's like you don't want to be branded you, as unsuccessful exactly and that's crazy because from my vantage point at sundance everyone is unsuccessful. I mean, there are very few instances of success. And I'm not saying like, oh, you know, like we all know It Follows did really well at the box office. We all know that um, A Ghost Story, Get Out, like all these movies, A24 is usually behind all these successes. Uh, But when you look at, well, how much did the producer actually make on that film or Mm -hmm. the filmmaker whose LLC originated the film, how much money came back to them? And how long did they work on it? Right. right. And then yeah. when you divide that. Sure. By... It's like, oh, this took me three years. So right. I worked on an A24 film that was uh, definitely lost money. Yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. I mean, that's uh, interesting. It happens. Though. Yeah. Because we talk about A24 as like they're made out of gold. I mean, right. that's kind of our perspective. But I guess if you made a movie for $5 million and you got $3 million from A24, then you just lost $2 million. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah. I mean, that's also, I mean, it's another episode, but like, that's why I advocate for filmmakers to keep budgets low because I know that no one's making any money. So it's just kind of a, it's a depressing situation. So what we're trying to do is encourage filmmakers, like the directors and the producers to get involved in distribution and we're granting them money to help the expense of distribution and marketing. And then we're encouraging having sustainable careers by get like they'll get all the money from distribution and marketing instead of a distributor coming in and taking 30% or your sales agent, you know. Right. And, and the thing that I think is maybe the most interesting about this transparent data is that you said 30%. Oh, you, you think, oh boy, like if someone takes 30% of the movie that I made, 30% of a million dollars, that's still a plenty of money for me to right. keep, right? But that's, you still have to think about all of those distribution costs, all of those marketing fees. And, you know, people talk about fuzzy, fuzzy math in Hollywood. Right. That's, ex- that's explicitly what we're talking about. It's like, if you don't have the option to really look into people's books and really pry and figure out and audit, a distributor can tell you anything they want. And sometimes they mean it and sometimes, you know, like I'm not, yeah. I'm not painting also, anyone with a brush of like, 
No, they're, but they're not crooks, right? But it's exp- mm, it's expensive. There's good distributors and there's sure. bad distributors. Sure. And like um, a bad deal is worse than no deal at all. That's what my boss used to say about you know. So it's like if you're presented. Like I'm a micro budget filmmaker. Other micro budget filmmakers have like these leeches coming after us. And a lot of filmmakers don't have the context to know when a leech is after them. Sure. And so. And it's easy, right? You're like, yeah, I want to be on Netflix. Right. How, how else am I supposed and to do that? And the distributor will promise that, but right. very often they will not deliver. Right. And so, and then, yeah, they'll, they won't market your title. They'll take that 30% distribution fee or 25 or for whatever the percentage is. And then you're just kind of left out. And what we're saying is you're, you're the filmmaker. You birthed this film. You know it more than anyone. You know your audience best. Why don't you market directly to that audience? And then you develop a connection with that audience that lasts your entire career there's definitely good distributors and bad distributors but i think something very common with a lot of distributors that distribute more than one movie is that they will take losses on one movie and make it up on the other on another movie they'll if your movie is doing really really well a lot of times they will cover their losses on another movie yeah and that's why there's catalog distributors who take on 10 titles at a time and then just hedge their bets which which means though, like when you say they're covering their losses on your movie, your movie could be doing well, but if your distributor is piling sunk costs from other movies onto yours, that hits your bottom line. Right. right. And they're really good at kind of doing it in a subtle way. It's not like your movie made ten million dollars and they you know, they write off nine million dollars. Yeah, you don't get an invoice that's like, wait a minute, posters for another movie? That's not right. <laughs> right. Well, that's the but- other thing. It's like with theatrical, you get box office data, right? You cut, you get reporting that tells you how many people paid tickets, how many people were in the seats. With VOD, you don't get reporting. Like a lot, I get reporting because the Orchard is pretty transparent, but um, you don't know who your audience is. You don't know where they came from. And iTunes is the only one who kind of does these regular updates of how many transactions there were. Also, if there's a distributor between you and Amazon and Netflix and iTunes, there's a really good chance they won't pass that information on to you, which is the whole point, right? That you're making. Well, I, I wanted to make sure the thread isn't lost with that. We're doing something different this year. You know, we did the first year with two Sundance supported films. And this year we're opening it up. It's, four films i'm hoping to be really inclusive to micro budget films because of my affinity for micro budget and um we're encouraging and it's twenty five thousand dollars in grant money for each of these films we're encouraging that money to be spent on digital marketing and it needs to be a recently completed film with an upcoming or recent festival premiere with a u.s based team that's all we ask for mm-hmm. i mean it, it's so that's like, a lot of movies that qualify yeah, and we only have 24 applications right now. Come on, guys. And it's a really good deal. Like, I've never been more proud to talk about anything, and I could go into detail forever, and I probably will. Free money. Well, you know, the thing that um, I think is really important to mention also is that we talk about how uh, marketing and all this stuff is also confusing and hard and scary, but it's also uh, really interesting and fun and another yes. part of filmmaking. And it's easy to, to pretend that your job stops once you deliver you know, your QC files or whatever. It's frustrating. You're playing into a cliche that an artist is just this like left brain individual who can't, can't be uh, pragmatic. We don't want people, we don't want to turn people into suits. We don't want to turn people into like 
soulless corporate thugs but you know we just want filmmakers to look out for their best interests and to communicate with distributors in a way where they can see when they're about to be taken advantage of or whether the distributor is like a good egg or a bad egg well and i think you're encouraging people to engage in the act of distributing right like you're talking about like building an audience that you take with you for the, your entire career yeah. that's magical yeah. right like that's super fan you look at like sustainable uh, sustain like joss whedon is a is the perfect example of that like people care about his tv shows even if they're bad um <laughs> And, and that, like, that becomes a part, sorry, um, that becomes part of his mythos and his brand. And, you know, like, yeah. that that could be everybody, right? Yeah. Like, I, you can have these small... I can't stand, like, the know your brand thing. Like, it's a phrase that we use all the time. But I'm, I choose more to say, like, use your personality, right? So it's like, Joss Whedon, he has a personal imprint, like... A personal like, brand. Yeah, sure. I know. Yeah. Mm. But a it's voice. Kind of, I, I'm not afraid voice. of being a douchebag. No, <laughs> go ahead. Um, <laughs> no, but I studied film history like most of us, you know, the auteur theory. I really liked that. The idea that your film had your DNA in it. You know, your marketing material can have your DNA, DNA in it as well. And a distributor is going to like take your beautiful story about a family who, you know, your coming of age story with a dog and they're going to like... They're going to call it Killer Dog. Yeah. And they're going to put a picture of a dog that was not in your movie yes. on the poster. I don't I'm know actually... if, it, if it made it to the podcast or not, but one of the Delt producers did a movie that was really great, really well received, had a killer cast, like a bunch of SNL people in it, and they rebranded it with literally like a woman's butt <laughs> as the poster. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And it did amazing. And they he's a billionaire can... now. <laughs> yeah, so he's like, uh, you know, this is the, ha- the house that butts built. Is... <laughs> so for my, I've only had one experience really with this, like distributing a feature film. But when I made my first movie, I worked at Disney full time and I took some time off to go make it. And we finished making it. We edited it. We submitted it to festivals and got like a, a premiere date. And then I went back to Disney and I was working full time again and it, like the producers were kind of, you know, working on distributing the movie, but also kind of like working on their next films. And I had this realization that I'm sure a lot of first time filmmakers have, which is you like rip your heart out. You, you know, you put every single thing you have into this movie and then you stop <laughs> when the movie's done. Yeah. And no one ever like accounts for that distribution time, which is actually the only part where you can really get anything back and show it to the world. It's like the whole purpose of why you made the film is in distribution, yet we walk away. I mean, like, I did the same thing for my first feature, and I'm I'm very regretful. I had my distributor take over, and I did, like, a newsletter to announce its release, and I, like, weighed in on poster images, but, like, I didn't really take stock, and I'll always regret that, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, I've quit. So that's when I left Disney again. I was like, I can't. I just feel like I've abandoned my child <laughs> right when they learned how to walk. My boy. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I will say, so Squaresville, my web series, obviously is not a feature, but uh, I was very, very hands-on, quite literally uploading all of the But did you shoot and distribute at the same time, or did you finish everything and then you started uploading? Uh, season one, we'd finished everything. Season two was a rolling release. So I was nice. in post while we were releasing on that stuff. Because I wonder if there's some, I mean, obviously there's like some momentum and synergy and everyone on set is so excited mm-hmm. about what you're shooting that they're probably talking about it on Facebook and 
people can yeah. watch stuff while you're working. I was it's pretty like, good about nice. kind of building that up, basically. Like it kind of, my point was that like having a day job, you can steal a little bit of time at lunch or, right. you know, before or after work or maybe during, um, depending on what your work situation is. And like a lot of that time, a lot of the marketing assets and like, actual distribution work is just literally time behind a computer so like yeah. if you can steal a little bit of that time if you've got a desk job with some idle time that's not the worst way to spend it you know? yeah and i mean there's a lot of hacks to it so it's like you could if you run a mailing list or if you're active on social media and you don't know who the audience is for your film you could do like a simple google form and be like why did you know to the people who've seen the film yes then why did you like my movie what scene was your favorite who's your favorite character what other movies would you compare it to i mean whatever you decide what the questions are something that guides you to how you can market your material in a really effective way and that's free and it takes five minutes to send it out into the world so there's lots of hacks to kind of crowdsource answers for marketing and distribution um, I did want to say, though, in exchange for all of this support that Sundance is providing to last year's and this year's fellows for the CDF, um, you know, we ask for all this information and we ask for full transparency. We ask you to be really brazen and honest with your reporting, your budget, your your audience growth, um, which is super scary, but it's really to benefit the field. And I, I didn't want to gloss over that point because... Um, it's a key factor in what we're doing. It's free money, but it's free money in exchange for taking a leadership position and encouraging filmmakers to learn more about all of this. Mm-hmm. And to be, you're an educator now, right? Like yeah. you're, you're an advocate for what this is and what it means and explaining to people. Doing a much better um, job than I did in trying to explain Columbus's theatrical. Sure. I'm well, hoping for people better than me to yeah. talk about this. I'm right. So the dream is like, or the near future is like, oh, you've got a panel of alums and fellows who all have done this. They can say tangibly, this is how much I spent on production. This is how much money I made. This is how much money things cost. You know, like when you're in a Q&A yeah. and like someone's like, how much was your budget? And, and they like, never can answer. You can never answer, right? Yeah. And it's a combination of maybe being under NDA or maybe like not wanting to say for whatever reason, you know. It's the fear of looking unsuccessful. Like right. we were talking about earlier, that's like a, a major fear of most filmmakers. And um, sometimes that ego gets in the way of real growth in the industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I like I want to talk about Harvey Weinstein right now. And it's like people are finally coming out and sharing information because there's this sheath of secrecy around everything in the industry and it's absurd. We just need to talk more. And I, I don't mean to compare distribution marketing to something incredibly serious and horrible. But in general, we should be breaking through these walls a lot easier. Definitely. I guess let's kind of, if we can bring it back to our listeners a little bit. So the people that you're talking to are people that have finished feature films or about to finish feature films. Uh, they're recently completed feature films that have either have an upcoming or recent festival premieres. So we're talking about 2017, 2018. And sometimes there's exceptions to the rule. So just email me at, you know, creative distribution at sundance.org. Um, we need your North American distribution rights to be free and clear, but you can have an international deal. As long as you're US and Canada are free, we, we can chat. And that's because we want to be a part of you making those decisions. We want to document the process. We don't, you know, a lot of films 
do well with an all rights distributor. So we're not thinking that every film is for us, uh, but the ones that are a little bit more entrepreneurial, who really want to get their hands dirty, those are the filmmakers we we want to talk to. If you had a film and it got into, let's say, the Toronto Film Festival, it's going to mm-hmm. premiere there, would you apply for this fellowship or would you wait to see if you got... Yeah, I mean, basically, I'm asking people to apply and then be in touch with me. And it's like a dance. So like if they're applying and they really want the fellowship, but A24 reaches out, you know, um, they just email me and they just say, look, I wanted you to know we're being considered by some distributors. And the reason I say that is because we have a selection committee at Sundance. So like the top 10 or 12 films are going to be screened by like, 10 or 12 people at Sundance who are head programmer, fancy people, people who could like crush me with their thumb, you know, like very high up people. And I don't want to waste their time. So we're not asking for you to commit to us 100% if you apply for the fellowship. We're just saying express your interest and then be in touch with us. And to be realistic, right? Like you all know that the films that are the most competitive are also going to have a great shot at getting those big offers. Yeah, but what we what I've noticed in the year and a half of working at Sundance or almost year and a half of working here is once it it happens after the first film, after the first feature, you talk to filmmakers and they go, yeah, I was fucked over and I'd like to change something Mm -hmm. or I've seen my friends being fucked over and I really want to take action and, um, you know, take a stand for filmmakers being treated a little bit better in this industry, especially from distribution powerhouses um so my dream is filmmakers who who were their first choice Mm -hmm. because they know the landscape can be really like unless they're getting you know stupendous financial offers that are going to set them up for life uh we represent something an alternative that's really exciting right yeah i mean for my movie definitely in hindsight the sundance distribution model or this thing would be like a million times better than what we ended up doing but you didn't know that. And no. you have to go through the ringer at least right. once, I think. So that's, I mean, that's interesting. I wonder, of the applications you got, how many of them are first-time films? Do you know? No, I'm not actually sure. A few of them are people who actually spoke on panels. Like, I run an email list. I've talked about it a few times, you know, on the show. And um, the, <laughs> I was counting today. One-fourth of the people who have applied are people on my email list who heard about the newsletter through me. Um, And that's why we're really excited or I'm really excited just to be here talking to other filmmakers, making sure that they hear about what we're doing. Uh, So um, I think probably a lot of filmmakers end up being emerging filmmakers. But the ones who respond passionately are the ones who are on the second or third. And do you guys care if there's a theatrical release or not? Well, we need all... Uh, North American rights free and clear. So um, most likely a distributor is not going to reach out to that filmmaker and say, we just want to do theatrical. They would pair it with a digital release, which we want to provide through our aggregator so that there's no distribution fee. But what about a movie with no theatrical release? Would that be okay? Totally fine. Because what we're hoping is that they're going to take the grant money and they're going to use it for digital marketing because what we're really interested in is audience building and big data. I mean, just like when you hear about Facebook and the hyper-targeting that happened in the election and you hear about 
A24 and all this amazing algorithms they use to figure out, you know, how to hyper connect with specific audiences for moonlight and testing creative, all these fun phrases we like to use in distribution. Um, that's what we're interested interested in replicating. We helped out um, our beta fellowship film was First Girl I Loved, um, produced by Ross Putman and Seth Kaplan, David Hunter, and directed by Karam Sanga. And uh, they had a very like voracious uh, young women audience base. And they did a lot of digital marketing and they did gangbusters digitally. So that's really interesting is like figuring mm-hmm. out who's the exact demographic and psychographic for your film and then just doubling down on them. Well, if I told you guys that your next movie, you have the option of either having it on 100 screens and it'll lose 10% of the money you spend on it, or it can be digital only, but it'll make 20%. Yeah, I'm done Which with one do theatrical. You pick? Sure. I'm done. Yeah, yeah the, uh, I would say theatrical is a, a, this weird thing where we grew up thinking that's what it meant to make movies. Yeah. Right. And so there's this psychological barrier of like, it's not a real movie unless it's on a movie screen, but people aren't going to see movies in theaters anymore. And I want to make movies and I'm okay with that being on, I'm okay with that on a phone, frankly. Right. Like I'd rather it be in a, in a movie theater, but like, you know, and I think I understand, I don't fault people for feeling that way. But also, if it's if if it's as stark as knowing that you are not going to get to make money because you're sinking all of these this cost into promoting a movie in a local market where maybe your your demographic or psychographic I love that new term isn't really located or you know just it's just so expensive and so hard to get them there unless you have the potential to really like you know put Robert Downey Jr. in a fucking Iron Man suit like you're probably not going to make that money. Yeah, and I want to buy a house. But what if you are Matt Enlow and you want to have a long directing career and you can have your movie at the arc light and the poster for your movie can sure. be in the hallway there. Sure, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> and that's producers what film, that's and what Harvey Weinstein can see it. The, this, this, yeah. is a, this is a Liz Crib for sure. It's what that's it's what amazing. How for. did you know? Yeah. So I'm this is my new my new like movement that I'm trying to get out into the, the ether is like use film festivals as your theatrical run. Ask for those screening fees, collect audience information, directly connect with your audience. And um, I think there would be, I'd love to see a way in the future for film festivals to share, do some sort of rev share with the filmmaker for ticket sales. I know we're not there yet. And I know film festivals are like struggling and they have no resources. So I'm asking for a lot from people that have nothing. I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but the rev share is about uh, the filmmakers doing more press for the film festival. Yeah, right? and they're already doing a lot of press, but like we're not getting any financial reward for it. Um, but regardless, yeah, we already have a system set up where we can watch our film in a theater with a packed house if we connect with sure. that. Sure, invite your parents. Because yeah. I, 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 what you're getting at, Oren, is that that poster at the Arclight and you post the photo on Facebook, that makes you feel like a real filmmaker and yeah. in a more tangible way, you think that people have heard of your movie that way. Well, right? in Hollywood, a producer, right. a, a studio head, someone goes to see Blade Runner and they see sure, sure. You know, Matt's thoughts. You would never not put Blade Runner in a movie theater. Or that's, not the, that's not the movie we're talking about. Right? No, I'm saying that they will see your poster when they go see Blade Runner. Sure, sure. I'm saying like the exposure 
of like, oh, I've heard of that movie is like worth so much but in Hollywood. But that's not enough. Like um, we work with this company called Third Impression. Um, they did the digital marketing for Unrest, one of our fellowship films. And Matt Delman has this theory. I like it. It's that you need to see a film three times in order for it to stay in your mind. It's not his theory. Well, I mean, this is like theory. normal, basic. Right. Yeah logic maybe so yeah you see that poster once but how many how much money do you have to spend to connect with that audience two more times to stick in their mind i guess i'm i I don't know if i'm being clear but i'm saying you're saying you want hollywood mucky mucks to think you're real yes i don't care about the audience yeah i want (laughs) i want to get the marvel movie right but and i want the person i'm pitching to to be like oh you made you know, whatever uh, unrest. I've heard of that movie. I, well, then I you get good press. I think. I think Mucky Mucks are still reading Variety and IndieWire sure. and Hollywood Reporter. And we made so much money, and uh, we, you know, we're a profitable film. Like that's a thing that Mucky Mucks respond to. Yeah, Sundance. Like when First Girl I Love did is doing really well financially, and their original offer coming out of they played Sundance Film Festival in 2016. The original offer was far less than what they made working as a creative release. Um, you know, Ross wrote Ross Putman, who um, wrote a press piece about um, how well they did. It got played on in NoFilmSchool.com. It uh, got a lot of traction, and like now, everyone who comes up to me and and says we heard about your department, it's usually from First Girl I Loved that they've heard of us in general. So that film, and you know, Ross's. I don't. I feel like he should be on your podcast sometime. By the way, Maybe, who knows? Um, but he, um, you know, he they are they're very successful. They're getting projects greenlit, and it's because of the story they told about their film. I know what you're saying. I I still love festival laurels because the same reason. Even though laurels mean nothing, like I'm still like I want that laurel. I want to feel well, pride. Sundance laurels. Yeah, I mean Sundance. Something. Oh, I'll take any laurel. I will do the <laughs> sure. East Los Angeles Independent <laughs> Film Festival laurel. <laughs> I guess for me personally, I've been both my wife and I have been thinking a lot about how you, we pitch ourselves. Uh, I just like s- sign with a new production company. She's, you know, trying to find a new agent and it's like part, you know, you can show your work and you can show a trailer and your thing, but the real kind of magic of getting representation and getting people to take you seriously is to say like, Hey, you got to check out Liz, Liz Manichelle. You know, she just had a movie at Sundance. She has this, sure. did this. Yeah. yeah. And but- it's like the, so I'm saying it's part a bit of, of why an you unfair make a movie. Par- it's a bit of an unfair paradigm, though. You're, if if you the choice is like have a movie that everyone's heard of or make a little bit more money, I get sure I get what you're saying. But Liz's point is that people aren't choosing between making a Marvel movie or making a profitable indie. They're choosing between being lowballed by a distributor who's undervaluing their film or proving to the world that there's an audience for their work and showing it and making money right, from, right. I, from distributing I, it. I think we're talking about two different things because right. I totally agree with all <laughs> that. And I actually think what you're saying about film festivals as being your theatrical run is kind of ingenious. I, I feel like I stole it from like seven other people. So I don't want any of that credit. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I'm saying on the question of whether you want to have, whether you care if your movie is in theaters or not, and part of the reason you would care about it is because you can say, hey, my movie was in theaters. Um, hey, yeah, it was at the Arclight. It was playing, you know, and, and like my movie is at the Arclight. Maybe tonight when you are going to go see Blade Runner, you might notice the poster next to it. Like, sure. oh, that Oren wasn't lying to us. Maybe there's some value to that. Maybe there isn't. I think to me, I would pay $10,000 to have a poster of a movie I, that doesn't even exist at the Arclight, you know, because it would 
give me some sort of credibility. And you should be free to make that decision. I had a filmmaker who um, is in the USC community uh, have a meeting with me and ask me about distribution. And I told her, you shouldn't do a theatrical. And she was like, screw you. I really want to do a theatrical. And she did. And I'm sure she's really happy to like talk about it. But ultimately, um, uh, is it a net win? No, not financially. Emotionally, though, it may be. It may be what she was meant to do as yeah, an artist. And, and I'm not saying it is a win either. Like, there are advantages to the theatrical that go far beyond the financial. I know our movie we sold to South America, mm-hmm. and one of the terms, and we that was our biggest payday was from South American distribution. One of the their terms was your movie had to plan in at least 100 markets in the u.s for them Mm -hmm. to sell so we we actually made money on on our theatrical it was like a a really weird model it was this company called dne and they do more event films and so our movie didn't Mm -hmm. play many times in each market it played like between one and five times in each city but we managed to like pack each theater and cover the that's what you need to do now fees when we scheduled them in a way where we could not make as many prints as screenings Mm -hmm. and you know Mm -hmm. things of that nature uh, and we did not make a lot of money. I mean, we made like five thousand dollars or something. something. But it was a, a profit. We didn't lose money, which is kind of a miracle and theatrical. And we should also clarify the this grant money and this whole process doesn't negate that you can't. Oh, for sure. You, you yeah, can. you can do a theatrical, but yeah. the money that we're giving twenty five thousand dollars is probably not enough to cover the expenses of a theatrical. You, you, you can say it definitively. That is not enough. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe well, we could do a limited one market or while. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And yeah. You, you said one of your movies last year did a theatrical. Columbus is in the, I mean, both Columbus and Unrest um, are at the end of their theatrical run right now. Like I was saying, Columbus is doing gangbusters theatrically, but that's a film that was actually made for a theater. It's, gorgeous cinematography very specific framing the filmmaker is like obsessed with ozu so everything is kind of like a nod to this this kind of staging that he does uh so kids love ozu (laughs) so it's like an older audiences still still do go to the theater and older audiences i think are who were are eating up this film but unrest uh the other the documentary that we're working with is doing amazing on the itunes charts it's number seven this morning when it's not even um, offering rental as an option. It's only available for purchase on oh, iTunes wow. for like fourteen ninety nine, And it's number seven and it's been out a week. And that's uh, the sort of cred that it's the same sort of thing as seeing a poster in the arc light. You yeah. Know if you're I mean? in the Jumbotron on iTunes, like you're doing, you're doing well. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess nowadays there are a lot more things like that. I mean, now I see like, you know, Matt and I work in commercials and sometimes people are like, oh, where's that commercial going to be? Um, if like I used to be like embarrassed to say it's like just on YouTube. But now like those YouTube pre-roll ads are seen by more people than broadcast commercials. You know? Yeah. When was the last time you watched a broadcast commercial? I last do it night. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a really good e-trade so. commercial yeah, right yeah. now that I, that I love. Um, That's why I love like whenever I'm in a sports bar, which is pretty rare. I'm constantly watching the commercials. Yeah, I'm good company, you guys. It's always like the motion. Bl- I mean, I don't want to get into a tirade about motion blur, but it's always like the motion blue com- yeah. blur commercials. It's horrible. Yeah, I guess uh, sports looks better that way. I don't yeah. know. I don't care. It's ridiculous. What the 120 hertz stuff? Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, you know there's like all these film directors that are like teaming up to try to get TV manufacturers to stop <laughs> to stop doing offering it. that. I'm so on board. Yeah, right. I will I will give them my money. Yeah, the soap opera effect. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. It's horrible. Um, well, cool. So I guess if people want to find out more about it, what do they do? Yeah, just um you can email me Liz underscore manishall at sundance.org or creative distribution at sundance.org. And we really are trying to break open the gates. A little bit. Um, if you have a question, please just get in contact and email me. If you want resources, um, you know, we're writing these articles about things that are really important in distribution and we're trying to write them like humans and not use too much of the lingo we use tonight and break it down a little bit more. Um, and we want to send you those articles because we're trying to, um, I don't know. We're trying to do something. If you want, is there like a, a good place to go to find all of the articles from your department? Yeah. Um, we're called the Creative Distribution Initiative. I think if you find the programs link on the Sundance website, that's what we're called. And uh, do you have a sense of when the those initial reports are going to be published? So that'll be in March, but we're going to do a sneak preview leading up to this year's festival. And um, also to mention, we're rolling application deadline Mm -hmm. for the fellowship. So we're open until we find all four films. So that could be a few months. That could be six months. So we're really trying to encourage people to apply as soon as possible. So we know what we're looking at and what our options are. And then we can start communication with you. Yeah. Well, I I think also just like that report that you're going to publish, I think that'll be invaluable for people looking to make their first feature, right? Because you get ahead of the curve and you can kind of figure out what people are hungry for, right? Like maybe I always think like, ah, everybody's got a million ideas. So like anything that can help you kind of like hone in on what people are hungry for or who's watching what is a good guideline towards guiding you towards what... um, what movie to make maybe you know that's, well, yeah. a, that's a backwards way of looking at it for some people but i think it can be really helpful well, and um i met with the studio producer last week and i had a very interesting conversation i know we're winding down but i i forgot about this until right now and she was talking about how every studio film is greenlit or not based off of comps mm-hmm. like they'll create a whole uh, analytic report of what they think this film will do internationally, domestically, what the comps are, what each department thinks it'll cost and what each department thinks it'll make. And the math is performed to figure out whether that film is going to be greenlit or not. I actually didn't know this. This is like this is stuff you guys probably knew 10 years ago, but I didn't know about we this. We only know it because when my manager was on Jacob Perlin, he told us the same thing. It's It killed a, me when I heard about this. It's a good episode. Um, well, I can't wait to listen to that obviously one. Obviously, didn't listen to it, Liz. <laughs> Sorry. Well, but what I think is very interesting is filmmakers come to us all the time and they're like, how do I get comps for my film, my indie film, so I can show my investors that we're going to make money and that they should invest in my film? And, and you're um, like, uh, Napoleon Dynamite, Blair Witch Project, <laughs> get out. Well, we actually are like, we're firm believers that you can't have a comp for your film. There's no way to predict success. Every film is different, and it's it's like an absurd thing to say, you know, like if you look at these five films, you can predict how your film's going to do. So, yes, I think these case studies are going to be invaluable in terms of the, the process the filmmakers went, you know, to release their work creatively, but it's not gospel. And so what will never be known is any sort of guarantee that your film will be a success or that you will be tied in any way to a similar films. Mm-hmm. 
Like, I I'm shocked that this is what studios are still operating on this absurdity. Well, but they, yeah, I think they just work at such a big, uh, like in such big numbers, like when they're spending $40 million on marketing, they know that they're going to reach, a, you know, 5 million people they can start using their averages. But when you're like working on indie films and these tiny budgets and you know that you're showing your Facebook ad to 10,000 people, like that, it gives you zero guarantee. There's less at stake. Well, but you're also your pool of people that you're trying to get interested in your movie is like so much smaller that the, I think at a studio level when you're saying, well, yes, out of like 50 million people, we think that 2 million people are going to be into this movie, you know, but out of 50,000 people. Yeah that 2,000 people become irrelevant. Oh, well, I, I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, but I do think that I'd love to see when they go back to those projections that may they made. I'd love to see how they deviated. Yeah. But I mean, they well, must have worked to some degree if they've been doing it for like 100 years. I think so. when you have millions of dollars to market a title, it's really, you know, you're going to reach audiences. And if it's good storytelling and it's a good script and it's been through all of this feedback, sometimes you win and sometimes well, you lose. Well, isn't that what's going on in the industry right now? That people are blaming like Rotten Tomatoes for ruining sure, sure, their right. predictions and yeah. their projections? Well, Rotten Tomatoes is super interesting because it's like, it's all subjective. You can't decide where, th- where something's like fresh or rotten unless you're the writer. And like <laughs> right. the Rotten Tomatoes reviewers are just deciding. I read a, I read a lot of reviews of Blade Runner because I did not enjoy it. And I wanted to feel better about myself. So I was hoping there were some negative... There's no, there's no negative reviews. Um, and I read the four negative reviews and they were positive reviews, but they were not, they were listed as rotten. So it's like, that's You're like, this guy liked it. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention those critic reviews have almost nothing to do with the audience reviews. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, well, yeah, it's all <laughs> super fascinating. Do you have time to go to just answer one listener? Questions? Yeah. I'm sorry for no, going off. Yeah. No, no. What are you talking about? This is all great. We're all going to make millions in the movie distribution mm-hmm. business now. <laughs> we have two questions from Chelsea Alden, who wrote to us. And you know her, Matt? I do. Yeah, she was in Squaresville. She plays like a, a like the mean, weird library girl. Oh, She's cool. like the person I used to hang out with, basically. Um, cool. Well, she says that we've quickly become one of her favorite podcasts, which, uh, you know, not as good as her favorite podcast, but whatever. Um, but she has two questions that I think are, are would be pretty interesting to our audience. Number one, she says, I recently jumped behind the camera for the first time and produced my first short film. We crowdfunded and called in a lot of favors. I'm really happy with how it turned out, but now I'd love to do more. What are some other options for funding, both in the short film and feature world? Any experience and advice you can share? Oh, and this is a question we get all the time, which is yeah. how can I finance my short film? Any tips? You just made a short. <laughs> Um, I actually worked with an all-volunteer crew, and I got a location for free. And it's a musical, and the choreographers choreographed it for free. So, um, like what about the camera? Where did you get that? Um, he worked. He was also our editor, your and he DP? was also the the DP was the editor, and was the operator, the was owned the camera, and did color, and was James Blythe. We worked with like a very you know tight, small crew. But did you feed anyone? Yeah, so Sean, my boyfriend, I gave him a producer credit to pay for catering. I mean, I'm cheap. I'm super cheap. I will find ways. Honestly, I think that that's kind of the best advice because, like, you're not going to make money on a 
short. Yeah. Did and, you? And I think trying to make money on it is a, a terrible idea, frankly. Like, did you design thing. it though to be inexpensive? Like you wrote it for one location. I actually had a completely different plan for the short. I wanted to shoot it at Sundance, without telling Sundance. And I talked to a mentor of mine. He's like, are you kidding me? You're an idiot. Don't put your job in risk. I was like, yeah, I'm an idiot. I'm really excited that Sundance is going to listen to this podcast now. Um, anyway, we totally could put the kibosh on, on that. Sundance is about uh, <laughs> like rebels. <laughs> I mean, that was my thinking. I was like, they'll really appreciate this. Um, so it was it, like the original idea was to be completely gorilla. And then when I found out or when I decided we were not going to shoot there anymore. I spoke at this high school once, and they let me shoot there. It's Huntington Beach High School. They have a stage. They have, like, an AV system. They have stage lights. And um, the teacher actually, you know, one of the teachers AD'd. We had some students who volunteered as PAs. Like, we turned it into a learning experience. And the cast is pretty big, right? Like, how many people are... are um... In the short? In the short, We yeah. had um, a volunteer dancers who learned choreography in advance. There were about 10 of them. And then the two leads spent a weekend recording the song in advance. Right. I mean, this is all... And who did the recording for you? And the um, composition and all that stuff. Robert Hill, who did the, com- the recording and composition arrangement for a Kickstarter video I did that was a musical. And he also um, did original music for a promotional video I did once. So I have like, you know, some people got paid a tiny bit amount, but like a fraction, a, a like one one hundredth of what they should have been paid. And uh, yeah, and so. Is there any reason why you didn't try to kickstart uh, this short? Because if I kickstart anything, it'll be to supplement funds for my second feature. And I've already done two kickstarters. So you know, Chelsea, I don't know if she's done any sort of crowdfunding, but you want to pick and choose when you're going to go to the well. And for me, it's it's for longer, longer form content. Yeah, I think she said she did crowdfund her first short. Yeah, I know. It's it's weird. I'm kind of in this weird position where I really want to make a short film. I don't think I would ever crowdfund anything because I just because as we all know, crowdfunding is like a whole job on its own. And I don't yeah. think I barely have time to make the short, let alone like the crowdfunding experience. But there are a few companies recently that are kind of, you know, I think if you're uh, you do work in commercials or other short form form stuff and you're with a production company, sometimes they'll help you at least give you resources um, to make a short film if they think that it will help you get work, which will in turn get them work, you know. Uh, And then there are like some, you know, Gunpowder and Sky has a YouTube channel called Dust that does sci-fi shorts that, you know, they probably cool. would give maybe $10,000 or something for, to someone to make an amazing sci-fi short. So they're still not going to give you, like, the money you need to pay everyone properly, but they will... There, there are places out there that will kind of help you incubate. New Form, obviously, has done that. Uh, it helps if you have 2 million subscribers on YouTube for them to pay attention to you. Yeah, that's a good, good strategy. <laughs> um, but in general, if... Try to find a way to pay for it yourself. Is yeah, yeah, and I, I think saying, it's okay right? to just um, you know, borrow a camera, shoot yeah. it on your iPhone. Yeah. You know, it's like, also okay to save your own money and spend ten thousand dollars, and just know that this is like what you're doing for your career, and you're committing to that, and it's not 
something that you'll make your money back on. Yeah, I, I think we talked about this on a, a recent episode, but um, I think that I had coffee with Tim Nakashi. Twelve hundred dollars to me is the magic number, where it's like that's enough sure. money. Like you can make it, you can make it short for that much money. Yeah. And yeah. like that's you can save that money up. You know, that's hard. That's yeah. a lot of money, but like you can get there. And it's worth noting, as we're always talking about, that the better your network is in LA, the easier it is to make a good short for twelve hundred dollars. Yeah, Chelsea's an actress, um, and you know, like she said, she's already pulling some favors and stuff. So there are people who owe her favors already. I owe her a favor. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like she did my web series for like cool. basically free. You need right? a boom up. Yeah, man in exactly. low. Yeah, he's kind of tall. So I think the other the other piece of advice is like do people favors you're going to learn more you could like now you know that you're into filmmaking yourself so kind of keep an eye on things be on set crew around and then start uh you know accruing those favors stack it up that's another way to like save up and i agree people things should be even you know it's nice to return favors but you can't just ask for what you want and you need and not worry so much about things being uneven sometimes. Sure, absolutely. If you're asking for just a day, you don't have to, you know, feel horrific about asking, you know, your friends and colleagues to donate a day to you. Yeah. Making movies is real fun. And if you <laughs> yeah. don't do it often, you know, people are excited to be an extra. I thought making movies is hard. Yeah, man. <laughs> hard things are fun. I like that podcast. Question number two from Chelsea, which I think is... A more interesting one is um, can you guys explain the purpose slash difference between a studio and a production company in that marriage of how they work together on one show or film? I know it's probably a simple answer and, and something that I should to totally know, but well, I don't. For example, Jane the Virgin airs on CW and therefore Warner Brothers is listed as a production company, but so is CBS. Help? Um, I actually don't know the answer to this. So, I mean, it's like same thing like when you did you ever play the the icon game when you're a kid like the movie comes on and you see like the orion mm-hmm. icon come you're like orion and it's like you know how to identify all the companies but like i still wouldn't what be able to tell which one did yeah, what sure. yeah. yeah i just knew the lion <laughs> was mgm i don't think that i can give the answer by myself but i think matt and i could like fight you our way through the answer struggle i yeah it's and only because checking because I'm pitching the show now, right? So I'm pitching it with Newform. That's the production company. However, sometimes a production company like Newform will hire, will subcontract production services from a company not unlike Sawhorse, right? Or literally Sawhorse right. in some cases. Actually, maybe we should talk about American Vandal because I think we have all those mm. pieces in place sure. already there you <laughs> instead go. Yeah, of great. hypothetically. Great. Uh, American Vandal, uh, that was Tony's idea. He teamed up with CBS. CBS is the studio. Correct. Yeah. Uh, they wanted production services. They teamed up with Funny or Die, who produced the show. And their distributor, which a lot of time people call the network, is Netflix. Right. So the, the way basically it can break down is the the network, the home where you're watching the, the broadcast or stream of a product does not necessarily have to be the same company that developed it. And those are typically not the same people that, or are oftentimes aren't the same people that literally make it, right? So production services and the production company um, can be two different entities, right? Um, so you kind of have your boots on the ground people doing the actual uh, work of producing proper, and then you have to be developed by 
someone and then you also have to be broadcast by someone so oftentimes that can be the same entity over and over again but it doesn't have to be well and just to weigh in from the micro perspective if you put something on itunes through an aggregator they're going to ask you for studio Mm -hmm. and it's your llc usually Mm -hmm. if you're self-distributing so you sometimes can be your own studio just for the purposes of explaining to people on itunes who made something, they mm-hmm. use the term studio. Right, that makes sense. So I pulled um, Jane the Virgin on IMDb Pro, up on IMDb Pro right now. And so they are, there is a production company, Poppy Productions, which I'm assuming probably is the company of the showrunners or someone like that. Right, right. Or probably an entity created solely to make Jane the Virgin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, potentially. Electus is also a production company. Oh, interesting. Uh, CBS Television Studios and Warner Brothers Television are listed as production companies. So we know the studio is CBS, right? Uh, no, the so well, CBS Television Studios is listed as a production company, but Warner Brothers Television is listed as a production company also, but not Warner Brothers Studios. Uh, and then distributors, we have CW Television in the U.S., but Netflix distributes it in Turkey. Fox Life also distributes in Turkey. There's all these other companies, E4 in the UK. So the network is who's distributing it just in the US, right? The, stu- right. the, the studio is well, who's only, teaming up with the own the rights to all of the distribution rights, basically, to bring it back in to the world. distribution yeah. of the West. Hey, hey. So, yeah, it's complicated. I know with, uh, with this show I'm pitching, New Forms, the production company, I think this company, E1, would be the studio. And then now we are... Trying to team up with um, the distributors, so probably CW in the U.S. and then other companies uh, abroad. I think Fox is the worst, right? Because there's 20th Century Fox, mm. which is films, right? But doesn't 20th also do? I think 20th does TV as well. Okay. And then there's Fox the Network, so it's especially confusing when it's like, oh, there's a network and a studio right. that are basically so. So Fox, Ugh. ABC, CBS, NBC. Yeah, basically the studio and the network don't necessarily have to be the same. So a CBS sure. show could air on NBC. Chelsea, you're making us look real dumb. Anyway. No, but like you guys, I mean like we're three people who have traversed this world for for I've literally years. been to those places. Right. And it's hard to figure out. It's like the same thing as marketing distribution. It's like we're there are people who have distributed content for for films and they could not explain to you what an aggregator is or why the waterfall is the way it is. Like all of this is very confusing. Yeah. The and only constantly people changes. I know that know that this terminology really well are TV people. TV people. That yeah, makes yeah, sense. Because they're the ones that are always have a production company, a studio and a network. And they really understand those the relationship between those three really well, but they change when it comes to Studio films and independent films. I mean, even just to me, what the the difference between a studio film and an independent film might be different than what you think of it as. Yeah, it's all really confusing. So if you ever don't know what someone's talking about, <laughs> you're in good company. Just uh, bluff your way through it, though. Right. Well, before unless you're signing a contract, <laughs> and then read it and ask a lawyer. Yeah. Before we uh, end this episode, uh, let's talk about some unpaid endorsements. Unpaid endorsements. <laughs> Liz, you're going to be mad at me. Uh-oh. Um, Nathan, for you, season three is out. <gasps> season four, first of all. Oh, you're right. Pardon me. Yeah. Nathan, for you, season four <laughs> is out. Um, this is the best show ever created. It's, it's, and you guys introduced me to it. You and Chrissy. It's real good. I, I, I figured I had to go first in case you were going to endorse it. I didn't even, th- I didn't even think about it. Now I feel foolish. 
it's um next level stupid it's so funny it's so weird it was worth the wait everyone um and uh if you haven't watched the other seasons they're all incredible so and go where, back are you watching it on on demand uh yeah i'm watching it through amazon prime oh, but okay. but it's available on itunes i think as well yeah I'd, i have to get it immediately basically so like i'm sure if you wait a little bit so are you paying for it yeah dude damn that's how demand, good it is right now on AT&T on demand. I don't have that stuff. Okay. I'm not a cord cutter yet. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't have any sort of cable, basically. My cable right. bill came out to $200 this past month. Ooh. It was when we first got it, it was like $80 and sure. it's just yeah. been creeping up. And I just have not had time to call Spectrum. Wait, $200 including internet? But I, we have, and you know, we have yeah. like a DVR and this. And it, yeah, they charge you for every remote that you've lost. I mean, it's insane. That's nuts. We should compare notes because my... Uh, internet only is fifty two dollars, but then I get. Are you you're still paying for Netflix and Hulu and HBO? You know, we yeah. I pay for some, I share with others. <laughs> sure, sure. Others, but I do pay for HBO and Netflix. So. Yeah, um, I have two things. Um, I was like in the ride over. I was like, they're gonna ask me this, so this is my like corporate one. It's Inbox by Google. Well, I don't know if you guys use it, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but it's like actually makes getting to Inbox Zero possible mm-hmm. with bundles. And it, anyway, I just highly encourage it. My teammate Jess forced me to do it, and it's been a lifesaver. And then um, Inbox Zero being that you have no emails left in your inbox. Yeah, I got Inbox Zero at work like two weeks ago. It'll change wow. your life, Mazel tov. Yeah, <laughs> I, the thing that's big for me. Um, for inbox is that you can boomerang. Yes, snooze. Snooze. That's snooze the is the call. best. It's a stolen feature from a different company that yeah. they, they crush. Or mailbox. Right? Uh, from mailbox, yeah. Um, and I think there was a company called Boomerang. But snoozing basically means like, oh, I'm gonna. I know I need to read this email, uh, but I know I'm not gonna deal with it until say. I get a, a listener question. I know I'm not going to answer it until uh, I'm recording with Oren. Uh, so I'm going to snooze it until then, basically. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I thought you could snooze in regular Apple Mail, but I guess you can't. You can yeah. also snooze to like someday, which I still haven't figured mm-hmm. out. But it's like, it's, yeah. just, it's just like put away out of sight so you don't have to think about it. I don't like someday. I want it to be sense. specific. Yeah. yeah. But I've done a few somedays that are basically like nevers. So you can do it for, you know, you have you can change it for whatever preset it is, but you could do it for tomorrow, you could do it mm-hmm. for later today, you could do it for the weekend, Wednesday you could do it for the next week. Yeah, or you could get very specific. Yeah. yeah. Um, my second one really briefly is reading. I have not read for a very long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm reading Neil Gaiman right now. I read Stardust. I'm reading The Ocean at the End of the Lane. It is wonderful just to read and like remind yourself that telling stories is beautiful. Done. Yeah. Books nice. are great. They're also great for interior design. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Buy a bunch of books. Try to color coordinate them and put them on yourself. You, yeah. You'll look smart. If you just want to tell people you're a hoarder, but you don't know how, <laughs> books is a good way to do it as well. Well, I'm just going to tell people about the tip that I told you guys about before we started recording, which is, you know, um, uh, I write a lot of treatments and try to pitch a lot of stuff and you always want great images and one of the websites that I've been using more in the past couple of years than I used to is Pinterest, um, especially, I, I mean, you can find everything on there, like cool art and stuff, but like wardrobe inspiration is really good, like design. Uh, I mean, there's also all this amazing stuff, but what's absolutely horrible about that website is that if you click on an image, it's like low res. And then if you click on the link that it was pinned from, like nine out of ten times, the yeah, site like, doesn't exist anymore. It's just a real yeah. pain in the butt to 
download a good, decent version of that image. Um, but somebody, I don't even remember who, showed me this trick that you can do if you're using Google Chrome, which is you can right-click on the picture and choose search uh, in search for image in Google. I think um, Catfish uses it all the time. Oh. Oh, I damn. Mean, not really. They no, no, use they, Google image. They do a reverse image yeah. search. Yeah. yeah. But they could just do this right-click thing. Sure. Yeah. Search yeah. Google for image, um, and it'll show you... Uh, all the copies of that image on the internet and sometimes in really awesome. high resolution uh, at the very least at the same resolution that you saw it on Pinterest where you were having trouble downloading it. So yeah, if you are on a website where the image is really difficult to download, right click search Google for image. Or if you suspect you're getting catfished and you want to see if someone's <laughs> profile image is elsewhere on the internet. Yep. It's a big clue on whether or not your uh, internet girlfriend is real or not. Oh, that is a good idea. Got some people to reverse catfish. Um, okay, cool. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, Liz, you got a website or anything? Oh, just lizmanishall.com. Um, just email me, lizmanishall at gmail.com. Anytime. What, what should what? people email you about? Uh, questions if about you, life. If you don't want to email Liz, you have an email newsletter. Yeah. Well, I have a newsletter that I put out what, once a month, and it's all about cool opportunities and distribution. Um I do speaking opportunities around the city and um, just I run a micro budget mentorship while I mentor micro budget filmmakers and help them make their movies. So. And if I wanted to sign up for that email newsletter. I think if you go to lizmanishall.com, there should be a sign up function. If not, it. you can always email her. Yeah, just email me. She's real nice. It's fine. Well, you can <laughs> find out more about the show and hopefully we'll put a bunch of links to these things on there uh, with the help of our new webmaster, Ewan. 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 Damn it. <laughs> Can't see what kind of name, name is Ewan? <laughs> How does you it's E W E N? E W A N. Oh, oh, say it, Liz. Say his name. Ewan. I love Ewan McGregor. <laughs> okay, how do you say it, Matt? Ewan. Ewan. Like Ewan McGregor. The okay. name. Okay, Isn't Ewan. That right. That's like saying your your name is Urin. That is my name. Urin. Yeah. I've been saying it wrong this whole time. Oh, no. But I didn't want to correct you because so I'm not polite. a jerk. You're so polite. Um, anyway, uh, Ewan has been really helping us get the site together, and we'll have links to everything. You can send us a question at justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at justshootitpod. Find us everywhere on Reddit, on Instagram. We're going to post a photo of us with Liz right now. I'm going to do it. Fully clothed. I'm going to do it right now. Um, Hold on. We just um, did it. We just we did just it. just took that photo. So, so if you guys want to see it. We just shot it. <laughs> oh, good. It's a little <laughs> blurry. Uh, you can find uh, me at Smitey Pileg. And me at Mr. Matt Enlow. Uh, music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And this episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.